while Debbie gets situated to begin our anthem, um, I just wanted to give a couple announcements about worship in the second half. Um, we have offering plates at the back in the narthex in front of each door. So during the offertory, take this time for meditation and um, you can drop your offering off um, as you exit today. Oh, 
Are they staying there? Well, I'm going to have to turn around to preach then. I love preaching to this choir because they pay attention and they're into what I say. Who was singing tenor? Was it just Pat? Pat? Oh, okay. Because it was beautiful. You, you've got it. Way to go, tenors. Love that. Scripture today is a very long story that comes from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John about a man born blind. And as Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his own disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and he washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? We gave him money over by Perkins once. Some were saying it is he, and others were saying no, but it's someone that looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. And if you think I just rushed through that, I did because you're going to hear it three more times before we're done. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him, how had he received his sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and then washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? They were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But we do not know how he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. In this brave and lovely parents, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. They sold him out. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And this man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said... Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking to you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do not see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. For once you were in darkness... Oh. Then we move on to Ephesians. The um, theme of dark and light comes out again in this text. For once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper awake, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a pastor living in these difficult times, I am scouring news articles and theological treatises about best practices almost constantly. Now, I am about to read you some headlines that I don't think are best practices, but allow me to share some. Pastor claims that coronavirus is a satanic plot to bring socialism to the U.S. Arkansas pastor claims that church members are willing to lick the floor to prove coronavirus is a hoax. Any of you? Any takers on that one? No, no. Okay, good. Um, Pastor weighs in on question, is coronavirus God's judgment? Evangelical pastor mocks pansies and sissies who wash their hands, won't close church for coronavirus. Same pastor. Evangelical pastor claims coronavirus is God's death angel to purge a lot of sin from our world. Here's one of my favorites, and this might explain why West Virginia is so low on the count of those who have this. God sent coronavirus to punish blue states. Nothing? I got nothing on that one? Just a little over there. Coronavirus, and of course we hear this anytime there's a crisis of any kind in our world. Coronavirus is a punishment for LGBT sin. When you listen, do you hear the underlying question? Because it's really simple. Whose fault is it? Something bad has happened all around me, and I'm really not that bad. It must be someone else's fault. There must be a reason that I can look to and point blame at. Who's responsible for this, yuck? Me? The world around me? Well, maybe you. God? Do you hear it? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What caused this travesty? There is something intrinsic in human nature that says to us, we want to know why bad things happen to good people. And part of that is because we feel in our very beings the injustice of it all. I've never traveled anywhere in my life. Well, I have to stay in my house. 
don't do anything risky. But I'm quarantined. Why? See, here's what I will propose to you. For as long as there have been human creatures on this earth, we have struggled with the question, why bad things happen to good people? And from my deepest theological learnings, one of the things that I will tell you is, what we know about the answer to that question is, we don't really know. Some people find that answer very unhelpful, but other people find the truthfulness in it a bit encouraging. See, here's what we do know. When bad things happen to good people, how we respond to them or how those people respond to those bad things makes all the difference in the world at how they see them. The perspective that we offer is critical to the way people experience crisis. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to walk you through history just a little little bit, a little fast. Debbie will know all these people because they're saints in the Roman church. My thesis is this. In times of crisis in the world, when the church does its best to act like the church, we are most successful. Because what we are doing is the work of the one who sent Jesus into the world. So here we go. Diocenes, the bishop of Alexander, in in 260 A.D. We're going clear back. There was a horrible plague in Rome caused 5,000 deaths a day. 5,000 deaths a day in Rome. And he says, Diocenes, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves And thinking of one another, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred death to themselves and died. that face. You're not encouraging us to transfer disease to ourselves and die, are you, Pastor? No, but let me tell you what happened in this church when they were practicing this kind of counter-cultural, counter-conditional love. The church in the second century nearly doubled in size. Because it started doing its job. At the same time, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, 
watched 1.2 million people die. Big chunk of the empire died from plague. He says, how suitable, how necessary it is that plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out justice of each and every one and examines the mind of the human race. Whether the healthy care for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love kinsmen as they should, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. Cyprian promoted a sense not of the spirit of flesh, which was self-preservation, but of the spirit and way of the spirit. Self-sacrifice. And again, in his age, the church more than doubled. Now, it's interesting we have text today about dark and light because during the time called the Dark Ages, the church was very clearly not doing what the church was called to do. The Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the time of the Black Death, the Black Plague in the mid-1300s, upwards of 200 million people died, 50% of the European continent. And they really believed that every single person who died was receiving the judgment of God. And they looked for people to blame and even critters to blame. Pope Clement VI outlawed cats, particularly black cats because he thought they were evil. But it took over and all cats were killed. And guess what? When you kill the cats who eat the rats, who have the fleas that cause the disease, you're in big trouble. That really happened. Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) As someone who owned a seven-toed black cat, I can tell you people still hold that superstition. But beyond the trivia of blaming black cats, Jews were sent out of whole nations. The church at a time when it should have been most apt to reach out to people, when millions of people were dying, doubled and tripled and quadrupled the fee for a funeral. And they were seen as greedy and unhelpful. And guess what happened? The church began to seem irrelevant to the people around it. The plagues of the 1300s and how the Roman church handled them or mishandled them set the stage, many believe, for the Protestant Reformation. For Martin Luther coming forth and leading in a different way. 
And in the 14th century, when Luther was working, the plagues reemerged in Germany. And Luther writes this wonderful thing. First of all, he gets snotty with his people because he could do that. And so he, he, he's quoting Matthew 25, you know, I was sick. When did you help me? I was hungry. When did you feed me? I was naked. When did you clothe me? And he says, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his dress, in his distress, but is obliged to assist them as he himself would like to be helped. Luther was very clear in another statement where he said, I will disinfect, I will clean, I will stay away from people I don't need to be around. But if someone calls for my help, I will go. Remember that Luther was always seeing the devil everywhere he turned. Part of the reason for that, here's a tidbit you won't learn from most historians. Part of the reason for that was because in the medieval church, they believed that the time when you were closest to the devil was when you were in the bathroom. And Luther had irritable bowel. That's a true story. And so he was always seeing the devil everywhere he turned. Luther, remember, is the one who picked up his inkwell and threw it at a wall. You can still see the stain on the wall of his cell because he so physically and palpably had the devil near him. And he he said this, too. We are here alone with the deacons, but Christ is present, too, that we may not be alone. And he will triumph us over that old serpent, murderer, the author of sin, the devil. However much he may bruise, Christ heal. Pray for us. Just two more today. Another Charles Spurgeon in the 1850s in London. There was a cholera outbreak. He was a brand new pastor at that time. He didn't know what he was doing. But he says that man in his lifetime had been wont to jeer at me. In strong language, he had often denounced me as a hypocrite, yet he was no sooner smitten by the darts of death than he sought my presence and counsel no doubt feeling in his heart that I was a servant of God, though he did not care to own it with his own lips. And there's one more we can't forget. The United States in the 1980s. My friend and former mentor, Jane Spar, will be 
the Grand Marshal of San Francisco's Gay Parade this year, if they have it. Because of her work with AIDS in the 1970s and 80s, first time I ever heard her talk about it, she said, you know, we didn't know what we were up against. We thought it was in the water. We had no idea. People were just dropping like flies. Handsome, active, virile young men. When she was nominated to be Grand Marshal, one of the things they said was, had it not been for this Presbyterian minister, the AIDS crisis in the United States would have been far worse than one could have ever imagined. Presbyterians did that. In our lifetimes. Responding to crisis. If the church can't respond to crisis, what are we here for? See, here's the thing. This text, this text is fabulous because it says, who sinned that this man was born blind? Why is this suffering happening all around us? What made it happen? And Jesus doesn't go into some big theological explanation about why bad things happen to good people. What Jesus does is say, just do the will of the one who sent me. And you'll find out. Because miracles still happen. The guy who founded the Vineyard Church, not, not, not this vineyard, but the Vineyard Denomination, was an unchurched guy and he started to go to church because he wanted to figure out what it was all about. And he went about three times and finally he went up to somebody in the church that looked official and he said, when are you going to do it? And he said, do what? And he said, you know, that stuff you do, when are you going to do it? And he said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I, you, you're talking in the Bible about all these miracles and all this stuff you do. When are you going to do it? When does it happen? And the guy said to him, well, we just believe that stuff. We don't do it. Does any wonder he started his own denomination? We've got to live as a people who do the one that sent Jesus into the world. We've got to believe in miracles, and we've got to do them. I had a friend once who used to say, yeah, the Bible would be way easier to believe in if all that stuff Jesus did way back then still happens. Pay attention, people. It's still happening. We have technology here in this church. We've had it for a long time. We're on the radio. Hello, radio audience. We love you. We have video. We're not live streamed, but Keith corrects me. What is it called? Delayed broadcast. To me, it's all the same. I don't know. Do you know how many churches don't have any clue about that and yet are broadcasting something today? The church is in a time 
of, of, of reformation. It's all going to be new for us soon. We have choir members. people. These people who most of you couldn't pick out of a lineup. Beautiful people. People of faith calling me up on the phone and saying, are there anybody who needs me to go get groceries? Because I'll do it. That's doing the will of the one who sent Jesus into the world. I talked to the school. We are not sending food bags over there like some of the people you have seen on TV. Do not lose hope just because we're not on TV. We're not sending them food bags because they didn't ask for them. Let me tell you what they did say. If this goes on into April and May, we're not going to need food bags. We're just going to need the whole pallet of food. We'll bring it over to you. We'll do what we have to to make sure kids are fed. See, here's my hope, is that people, people may go out some. People are mostly hunkering down, staying at home. But I'm hoping that what that means is we are finding ways to understand that things we used to take for granted are important. Do you know how many kids don't eat dinner as a family anymore? They never heard of it. They don't even know what knives and forks are. People actually reading together instead of just sitting in front of a video game or TV. I read this great thing the other day about when this is all over and we shake somebody's hand. We're going to remember what a gift that is to be able to be that connected with somebody. We are emerging in a place where we can learn that those little things that we took for granted really matter. And the other thing that I think is happening is for some people this is causing a sort of existential crisis. What are we doing in this world? Why are we here? How do we really connect to people? We've got to be ready as a church when all this mess is over offer answers to those questions. And I would remind you that our basic catechism says, what is the chief end of human beings? To love God and enjoy God forever. See, the church is at its best. When it's being the church. When I was in seminary, it was a hip thing for all the California churches to have champagne brunches after worship. And I remember one of my professors saying, well, is the champagne brunch you get there as good as the one at the Four Seasons? Of course it wasn't. And he said, well, why doesn't the church just be the church? Let the restaurant be the restaurant. The church exists to serve the community. To live counterculturally and say something that happens here is different than something that happens out there. That we love in a different way. That we exist in a different way. 
and that we can help you live in a different way. Just as the one who sent Jesus had him doing. So we can live doing the work of the one who sent him. Thanks be to God. Amen.